0: The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the prophecies of Zephaniah chapter 2. Some time ago when I was here, we considered some words from Zephaniah chapter 1, and now we continue moving forward in that series to the next sermon, Zephaniah chapter 2, the verses 1 through 3. text from the Word of God reads as follows, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So far the words of our text. After the proclamation of God's word, our initial response will be the singing of Psalm 91, the stanzas 1, 3, and 5. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the first chapter of Zephaniah, we had that very powerful passage which described the wrath and the judgment that God was going to pour out not only upon his own people, but his judgment upon this whole world. It was a judgment that was coming because of the sin of his people. And throughout that whole chapter, not once did the prophets stop to give instruction concerning what the people should do as a response to these mes- this message. So there's no doubt the Lord first wanted to make it perfectly clear just how bad the situation really was without taking away from that message in any way. But then as we come to these first verses of chapter 2, there seems to be at least a glimmer of light on the horizon there's finally some instruction about how the people should respond to the certainly coming judgment of God on the day of the Lord. However, even though the Lord does make it clear that in his wrath he remembers mercy, this doesn't mean he's softening the message in any way. What he has just prophesied before is not being cancelled out. And there's still a clear sense of urgency that he's conveying to the people. They're told that they need to act now. They must not despise this time of God's patience. They must make every use of the time, living wisely, knowing that this prophesied judgment of chapter 1, it's still most certainly going to come. Our text gives instruction for us today as well, brothers and sisters. For we confess that on his appointed day, Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. It is certain to happen. God's plan has been set in motion, he's busy working to that final goal, hastening the coming of his kingdom in fullness, at which time, judgment will happen. So how are we to live as we wait for that great day to come? That is what our God teaches us in his word, his word that is given to us in his special care for us and our salvation, his word that ensures that his people remain faithful right to the very end, rather than being lulled into a false sense of security. I proclaim to you the word of God this morning under the following theme, the Lord teaches his people how to live in view of his coming day. And we'll first see that it is a time for urgent gathering, secondly, it's a time for seeking, and finally, it's a time for finding shelter. Brothers and sisters, if your Bible is the same as the pulpit Bible here, then you'll see that these verses are placed under the heading, Judgment on Judah's Enemies. And it's true, if you look forward through the rest of chapter 2, it does speak about the judgment that God will bring on the nations surrounding Judah. However, these verses that we are considering this morning are more accurately placed as the conclusion of the prophecy of chapter 1. In these words, the Lord's not addressing all the nations around Judah. He's continuing to address his own people. And it's not a pleasant message either. We can see evidence for that right away in verse 1. The first verse of our text, it seems to be very short, very simple. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. But as short as that verse is, there is a powerful and a biting message to it. Through these words, The lord god who is giving his people evidence of his mercy he also makes it perfectly clear what he thinks of his people at that time the word that's used when commanding the people to gather together is closely connected to the hebrew word for straw and we see that connection clearly back in exodus the time when israel was in slavery perhaps also the children here remember that when moses first requested pharaoh to let the people go Pharaoh responded by saying, no, these people are lazy. They need to be forced to work harder. So he commanded that from then on, the people would have to gather their own straw. But well, when it speaks about gathering straw, then the same word is used as we find in our text. Exodus 5, verses 5 and verse 12. And that same word is also used when describing the man found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Numbers 15, verse 32. He was gathering small sticks of a tree to make a fire. Also the widow of Zarephath during the time of Elijah, gathering small sticks to make a fire. Same word again. So the kind of gathering that our text is speaking about, it is not the normal language of gathering together for an assembly as the covenant people. Our text is speaking about a gathering together in complete Humility. In the sight of God, the people were so pitiful that they were like little sticks, like straw, the useless part of the crop at the time. Nothing special about them at all, really not fit for anything except to be thrown out. It's also indicated in verse 2 where it directly speaks about chaff. Chaff which is so easily burned up and consumed by the fire. Now the idea of gathering together, that was nothing new for the people of God. There were certain occasions, according to the law of Moses, where the people were commanded to assemble before the Lord. These would typically be times of great rejoicing. They would celebrate the relationship they had with God, all the goodness that the Lord had showered upon them. They would worship the Lord together. They rejoiced as they heard the call, let us go to the house of the Lord. We recognize those words from Psalm 122. But with that gathering here in Zephaniah, there's not that same feeling of joy. They needed to gather together in humility, recognizing their weak and their lowly position. And that also comes out in the second half of verse 1. There the people are called a shameless nation. The very fact that they are referred to as a nation is a very cutting remark because that word used there is a word that's typically used to describe the pagan nations around Israel. So the people are being addressed as those who are no different than those around them. God is revealing what he sees from his holy throne. He says that the people's lives have shown that they're not different in any way. They have not worshipped the Lord as he commanded. They would worshipped other gods as well. We read about that in the first verses of chapter 1. They hadn't followed the Lord's commandments. They'd done as they pleased. And they thought the whole time God was going to let them get away with it. He would not do good, nor would he do evil. Chapter 1, verse 12. So by all the external appearances, there was no difference between God's covenant people and the surrounding nations. In fact, the Lord's chosen people were not even just a nation like the others. They were a shameless nation. The original here for shameless literally means that they were not desired at all. This word is more often used in the positive sense. Actually, we sang of it earlier with the words of Psalm 84. There was that yearning for the house of God, a deep longing and desire that came right from the heart. Well, now because of their sins and their hardened hearts, the Lord had the opposite feeling for his covenant people. Rather than having a strong desire for them, that he might be worshipped by them, that he might have this relationship with them, all motivated by his abounding love, he now has a strong desire against them. No positive desire at all. In fact, they've become shameful to him. And such language also reflects the attitude that the people had toward God. They themselves had no shame when it came to their own life They were very open about the fact that they were sinning. They didn't try to hide the fact that they were going directly against the commandments of the Lord. Rather, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 3, verse 9, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. And even as they are confronted by the prophet of the Lord with their sin, it doesn't cause them to blush in shame they have no remorse. Those are the people who are now being told, gather together. Not a joyful assembly, but a solemn assembly, one in which the people must together acknowledge their sin and repent. No sounds of joyful singing, only the sounds of weeping, As they plead with the Lord to yet show mercy to them and it is a gathering that must take place quickly there's a certain urgency that comes out in verse two that cannot be ignored three times you find that word before it's yet another reminder to the people that this day of the Lord's wrath is hastening it's near it's coming quickly When you put all of that together, there's no time to wait at all. These people, they're like straw. They're shameful in the eyes of the Lord. And they must gather together and repent before the Lord's burning anger is upon them. Now it's striking, brothers and sisters, that the people are called to gather together like this. It teaches us also something important. Namely about the character of repentance that must be in place. On the one hand... Repentance is always a personal thing. No one person can repent on behalf of another. But on the other hand, repentance is something that is spurred on within a specific context. And that context is in the community of believers. But the normal human way of thinking is that we think of sin as only a personal matter. Something I have to deal with, but nobody else's business. And people quickly ignore the fact that so often we are actually blind to our own sin. We don't see our weaknesses, we don't see our struggles as clearly as someone else might. Unless we are confronted in a loving way, we can easily get into the way of thinking that everything's actually going pretty good. And yet those around us can often be more realistic to the things we're dealing with. They see our sin and our weakness at times more clearly than we do. That's why the Lord commands his people to gather together. For while they are blind to their own sin, it's in the fellowship of the faith that the true reality of sin will come out in a more obvious way. When the covenant people of God gather together, they open God's word together. Then they receive the direction that they need. When God's law is set before the covenant congregation, then they can see just how far things have gone off the rails. And we cannot, also cannot ignore the fact that it was during the time Zephaniah prophesied that the law of God had actually been rediscovered and it had been read to King Josiah. So by gathering together, the people of Judah could hear that same law read and proclaimed by the priests once again. In fact, we know from other places in Scripture that this is exactly what happened. There's one good example in Nehemiah 9. The people gathered together. They heard God's law. They're confronted directly with the fact that they had sinned. They're confronted with their need to repent. They could confess their sins together. They could be assured of forgiveness together they, they could worship together and what it all means brothers and sisters is that god has so richly blessed us by making us a part of the covenant congregation because each time we gather together here in this place we also hear god's law read we hear god's word proclaimed we're again reminded of the fact that we have fallen short of what god requires The reading of the law is not a time to tune out for a bit, because we've heard it so many times before. It's what God uses to confront us all with the reality of our sin and our need for daily repentance. It's right here, in the fellowship of the faith, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, through his word and his spirit, he gets our lives back on the right track. We don't come to church simply to get reassured that everything's fine, we're on the right way. Through the word of God we are reminded that by ourselves things are not good. By ourselves we are sinners who are so often blind to our sin ourselves we are hopelessly lost but then God in his grace he calls us together he works that desire to be here in our hearts by the Spirit also that he might remind us of the fact that we rely completely on his grace together as congregation each Sunday morning after we've heard the law We confess our sins to God in prayer. We repent, pleading upon his mercy in Jesus Christ, that he will once again forgive us. And such gathering is not ever to be a matter of custom or routine. It's something we need to be doing with urgency. For as we read in Hebrews 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day, the day of Christ's return, it is drawing closer and closer. God continues to make haste to bring about the coming of this day on which Christ will judge the living and the dead, and to prepare us for that day to ensure that he does not need to address us as shameful people. God continues calling us together each week so that together we may confess our sins to him. Together we may repent and turn to him in faith before it's too late. And it's at this gathering of the covenant congregation we also learn what we need to be doing in the meantime before our Lord does return. In verse 3 of our text, the Lord teaches his people that while judgment is most certainly going to come, they shouldn't just be sitting back and waiting for it. They need to be busy before that great and terrible day arrives. And they need to be busy doing the complete opposite of what they had been doing in the past, leading up to this prophecy of certain judgment. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 6, one of the main accusations the Lord had against his people was that there were those who had turned their back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Many at that time, they completely abandoned the Lord. They ignored his commandments. They did their best to pretend he didn't even exist, that he had no say over their lives. But as the people wait for the fulfillment of this day of the Lord... And their God makes it clear that rather than ignoring him, they should be seeking him. That's what we read in verse 3. That will actually be the evidence that their repentance is a true and genuine repentance. For brothers and sisters, you will agree, it's very easy to say the right thing. Most people know exactly what they have to say to keep themselves out of trouble. However, when it comes to repentance, it's not only a matter of saying the right things, it's also a matter of doing the right things. Or to use the language of our confession in Lord's Day 31, it's about promising and showing real amendment. The very definition of repentance is that it is a turning, a turning away from sin and a turning to God in faith. Turning means that a change has taken place. It is something that requires active effort as well. That again comes out in verse three. Rather than sitting back and waiting for the day of the Lord to come, the people were to be busy seeking the Lord. Seeking means that they are actively engaged in following the Lord, their God, They're actively engaged in walking in his ways, following his commandments. A person who is seeking someone or something, they don't just sit back and they don't just wait for that object or person to come to them. No, they actively go out and they pursue it. And as we hear these things, we have to remember that God is specifically addressing his covenant people here. Because when we talk about seeking after God then we know that this is something people can only do through the working of the Holy Spirit. By nature, there is no one who seeks after God. Psalm 14. By nature, there is no one who desires to walk in the ways of the Lord. But for the covenant people, to whom God has revealed himself in a most special way, With whom he has entered into the most intimate of relationships. They know who their God is. They have received his covenant promises. They've had the obligation of the covenant laid upon them. So in our text we're not talking about people who don't know the Lord. We are talking about people who do know the Lord. But who have stubbornly turned their backs on him. They are called to repentance, to turn away from their stubborn ways and to seek the God who has revealed himself to them in the past. And notice how God addresses these people in verse three. He calls them the humble of the land. Word used here for humble has the sense of bowing or crouching. It's those who are in a submissive position They have nothing at all to offer to the one who is addressing them. They are only in a position to receive. And these are the people who are in the perfect position to receive every blessing from their covenant God. That is a fact that does not change over time. God does not pour out his blessings on those who are proud and who think they deserve something from the Lord... No, he blesses those who see themselves as poor, those who have nothing to offer to God. They are the people of whom the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, you have those well-known sayings from our Savior, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied.'" And as you hear those words of Christ, you can't help but notice the connections to our text from Zephaniah. In Zephaniah, those poor in spirit, those humble of the land, they are called to seek righteousness, to seek humility, or to seek meekness. Because it's those people who are actually living in a relationship with the Lord and who will ultimately be blessed by God as well. Brothers and sisters, those are the things that people need to be seeking before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrived. Not a higher standing in the world, not a more secure position in their own life. No, they need to be busy seeking a closer relationship with the Lord, living in fellowship with him, That's what seeking righteousness and humility ultimately means. Living closer with God. Seeking righteousness means that people strive to do what's right according to the commandments of God. Which is what ultimately shows love for God, as the Lord Jesus says in John 14, verse 15. Seeking humility means that people recognize their spiritual poverty. They look for every blessing of salvation from the Lord. And through his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, our chief prophet and teacher makes it very clear that the exact same thing is true for us today. That is the life in the kingdom of God. Our priorities today, all the things that we are busy with each day, they must reflect the fact that the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when that day arrives, as it will, like a thief in the night... How do you want to be found? Seeking the things of this world? Or do you want to be found seeking a closer relationship with the Lord? That was the choice set before the covenant people of Zephaniah's day. That's the choice set before the covenant people today as well. The day of the Lord, the day of Christ's judgment on the living and the dead coming quickly. There's an urgency to that choice and to act on it. What will you be busy with if our Savior decides to return this afternoon? What will you be busy with if he decides to return sometime later this week? As the Lord says through his prophet in Amos 5, seek me and live. For by seeking the Lord, that is how you find shelter on the day of the Lord. After telling the people what they need to be busy with as they wait the coming day, we might have expected Zephaniah to tell the people all going to be fine. As long as they would do exactly what he said, they'll be safe. Nothing bad will happen. But as we can tell from the second half of verse 3, that's not the message he brings to them. Instead, he says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And it's that word perhaps that needs our attention. The prophet does not bring any guarantee of safety. He brings only the possibility of being hidden. There's a good reason for him to use that approach as well. For by simply saying that perhaps the people will be hidden, he is actually confessing or acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord. Humans don't get to dictate to God what he must do or how he must judge. We see this same approach being taken by Moses in Exodus 32. After the people of Israel had sinned by worshipping the golden calf, Moses says to them the next day, Exodus 32, verse 30, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." Moses does not promise Israel that he can make atonement. He realizes that in the end, it's entirely up to God whether or not he accepts that atonement. So again, when Zephaniah here says perhaps, he's directing the people of Judah to the fact that God is perfectly sovereign over this situation as well. He's saying that in the end, it's entirely up to God whether or not the people are safe on the day of his anger. As far as the people are concerned, the only thing they can do is repent and they can seek the Lord in the time that He's given them. And furthermore, they must also recognize that no one can hide themselves from the judgment of God. And there were some who tried that approach when Babylon captured Jerusalem. They tried to run, they tried to flee and escape from God's judgment. In 2 Kings 25, verse 4, we read that when the Babylonians breached the city wall, that all the men of war, including King Zedekiah, they tried to flee for safety. They tried to run from the judgment of God. But their flight was in vain. In the end, they were captured, tortured, and taken to Babylon. And the exact same thing will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power at the end of world history. According to Revelation 6, verse 15 and 16, when Christ returns, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, they'll hide themselves in caves among all the rocks of the mountains, and they'll call on the mountains, they'll call on the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But it won't work. Because in the end, Everyone who has ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of God. No human will ever be able to hide themselves. Human effort will never work. Notice that at the end of verse 3. Being hidden is something that happens to a person. Not something they do for themselves. And yet... Dear brothers and sisters, there is a way to be hidden on that great day. There is a way to be safe from the wrath of the Lamb. And that is through being united to the Lamb of God in faith. For then you are not hiding yourself. You are entrusting yourself to the only one who can protect you. The only one who can give you shelter on the day of judgment. as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. there you have it there you have the perfect solution to the matter raised in our text Zephaniah instructed the people to seek after the Lord to seek righteousness and to seek humility that's echoed by the Apostle Paul he instructs the believers to seek the things that are above and to set their minds on such things in our text you have the possibility That God may grant safety on the day of the Lord. But the Apostle Paul teaches about the one way of guaranteed safety and shelter. He says that through faith, your life is hidden with Christ. That is the only shelter on the day of the Lord. Being hidden with your Savior. It's not a matter of going out, looking in all different directions, trying to find your own safety. It's being united in faith but the very one who will come in glory to judge the living and the dead is finding refuge in the shadow of his wings. For when you are united with him by faith, and you have died with him, meaning that all your sin is forgiven, all your sin is removed from the picture entirely, and then you have the absolute guarantee of safety, not just a possibility, you have something that is completely certain, When your life is hidden with Christ, then it cannot be lost. It's not vulnerable, it's safe, it's protected in the best way possible. It means that when Christ appears, we whose lives are hidden with him, we also will appear together. Not in humility, we will appear in glory. When your life is hidden with Christ, then you have the complete assurance that in the end you will not face condemnation. You will hear that most glorious invitation to enter into the kingdom of God for eternity, where there will be no more misery, where there will be no more sin, where all may drink freely from the river of the water of life. Brothers and sisters, the great day of the Lord is coming soon. So repent. Seek after the Lord. Find your shelter in Jesus Christ, the only one in whom your life is hidden and sheltered in safety. Amen.